All right. Uh, let's take our Bible and open again to the book of Revelation. And specifically to chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. We are getting so very close to the end of our study through the book. I hope it, it has been um, helpful in understanding the book, challenging and encouraging to you as well. I, I know it has been that to me to study through it again and to, to teach it. Um, and with chapter 18 today, we are in the middle of the next to last section in the book. This section will end very climactically uh, in the next chapter, which we'll study next Sunday. And I know, just FYI, just through, through the Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we're going to keep tracking with, with Revelation. We'll still get plenty of messages on the death and resurrection of Christ. And we're just going to keep plowing through here. But next week, we'll study Revelation 19, where um, we will have the end of this section, which just has the most thorough in my view, the most thorough description of the, the return of Christ in the whole book of Revelation. Um, I, and I even, even wording it as chapter 18 is in the middle of the next to last section reminds you, as I've said ad nauseum if you've been here the whole time, Revelation is not a linear book. It, it is a cyclical book, and, and the cycles tell the same story over and over again, and that same story covers the same period of time, that period of time being... From the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Hence the next, next chapter, chapter 19, where it's, it's all about the second coming and the final judgment. That's going to end this section, um, which means chapter 20 will begin. It's not, it's not describing something that happens after the return of Christ. It's starting over in the final section. Uh, it will begin the final section, which will take us to the end of the book. I've already mentioned, by the way, the significance of that division break. We'll say more about it when we get to that point. It's important to note just to help us understand what we ought to expect when Jesus comes again. So, but again, that's coming up. We're in chapter 18 this morning, and uh, this, is, th this chapter is it, it's very closely connected to chapter 17. It's going to feel in some of the, the things that I'm going to talk about this morning, some of the emphases that are here that I'm going to bring to light if you were here last week, it's going to feel very much like last week. A lot of the same emphases. It's just because they're so similar. And I figure uh, when, whenever anybody in this church gets up to, to teach or to preach from Sunday school on up, our, our aim in teaching and preaching is always whatever the text says, that's what the teaching is going to be about. So the text, Brother Al, Brother Al always said, the text determines the sermon. And so if the Bible's repetitive, so will be the teaching. Um, but just to review a bit of what we saw last week in chapter 17, um, we noted in chapter 17 that the, the focus of that chapter, not, not surprisingly, was on uh, Satan's efforts and the tools that he has at his disposal to do this um, during this age to lure people away from God and Christ and faithfulness to Christ, as well as to for unbelievers to keep them blind to the gospel, keep them blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's not just something we see here. We see explicitly said in other parts of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which I mentioned last week. The God of this world, little g, is talking about Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Um, and, 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 and what chapter 17 was describing was some of the tools and the, that Satan has at his disposal and the means by which he accomplishes that end. Um, and what we saw in chapter 17 were these, these efforts, these tools personified in an, one enemy called, it's called in chapter 17, the great prostitute. Um, and we, we noticed in chapter 17 that that prostitute was riding, it said, on a scarlet beast. Now, those, especially the, the language of a beast, um, drew our minds back to chapter 13, where we saw in that chapter two enemies of Christ, or two beasts described. And in that chapter, the beast described um, uh, one, one was on the land, one was coming up out of the sea, and they described... Together, they describe the governments of this world, the nations and the peoples of the world, the governments over those, and all of the deceptive philosophies that were, uh, uh, that were promoted in those cultures and nations to deceive people and to lead people away from Christ. That was what we learned in chapter 13. So when we come to chapter 17 and we see this prostitute also seated on a beast, we're kind of primed to understand the imagery in that way, and what we saw, we saw that confirmed in chapter 17, um, uh, that, uh, that, that, yeah, it, 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 we, the, 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 the enemy's given a name in chapter 17, and what was that name? If you're just looking back, 17.5, that, that prostitute riding on a, on a, on a uh, scarlet beast has a name that is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So Babylon, that was a great uh, city, a great nation of its day, of power, of influence, of, of, of wealth. But then you keep reading in chapter 17, and in, in verse 9, this enemy was also said to be seated on seven mountains, which is a pretty clear reference to Rome, which was a later prominent power of the world. And place of influence and of wealth and, and, and etc. What that tells you is that this enemy, this prostitute riding on a, on a beast, is not referring to any one single nation. It's not referring to any single culture, but it's talking about uh, something that is present in every age, in every culture, that holds out everything the world can offer so that people would desire the world and what it can offer more than they desire Christ, more than, they, more than anything else, and thus they would feel no need for him at all. And uh, I, think, I think it's important that we, we, we think about this a little more because, again, when we come to chapter 18, it's going to be a bit repetitive of what we saw in chapter 17. This, this beast, and what we, we, we always need to keep in mind when we're studying Revelation, because I, if you're like me, we've always been primed to see Revelation as talking about future things. And it's, it, it is, but it's not. I mean, it talks about future things, but so does 1 Thessalonians. I'm just saying Revelation is very much about here and now in light of what is coming in the future. And so when you read about the, the, the enemy, which is represented by the imagery of a prostitute or a beast, don't think... This is talking about something that's coming in the future. No, what I want to emphasize is this is something that has, 
not just going on now, but has always been going on since the Garden of Eden. Um, this is a, this is this this strong temptation that the world pulls on the people of God and blinds the unbelievers has been going on since Genesis three. Um, and let me just give you a couple of Old Te- Testament examples that that bear this out. This is just two references. If you want to jot these down, you can. But in the book of Judges, which, by the way, is hardly anything is held out in the book of Judges for our positive example. Uh, but in, in Judges chapter six, uh, 6 through 8, you have the, the story of Gideon. Gideon was one of the, one of the judges. And, in, and at the very end of, ja- of chapter 8, Gideon dies. And listen carefully about what, is, what it says after Gideon dies. This is Judges 8, verses 33 and 34. No sooner had Gideon died. Now, when, you, when it starts that way, it's about to tell you something important. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god, little g, and did not remember the Lord their God, capital G, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And you hear in that, the same, the same kind of language that we see in, in the book of Revelation. They prostituted themselves. Um, and as a result, they forgot God. That's the whole point. They did not remember. And I don't think that's accidental or coincidental language. Baal, B-A-A-L, or Baal, uh, was, the, was the word for the Canaanite gods. They were polytheistic. Um, and hence, you'll often see it in the plural, the Baals. And the Canaanites would have performed in, wicked, immoral acts in the, in the worship and in the service of their gods, their pagan worship. And, and, and so when it says in, in, in Judges 8 that the, the people of Israel prostituted themselves, it means that in some ways, literally, because they, they would perform very immoral sexual acts in, in, in their worship, but also symbolically prostituted themselves, which is more what Revelation means, that, that the, the Israelites believed whatever the Canaanites believed. And they, they, they worshipped what and how the Canaanites worshipped. And they did whatever the Canaanites did. They became like all the world around them. And interestingly, it says in Judges 8, that in doing that, it says they set up Baal Bereath, Baal Bereath, as their little g, God. Uh, what does that mean? Bereath is the Hebrew word for covenant. We just studied through the covenants on Wednesday nights, if you've been here, and that's the Hebrew word that is used all through the Old Testament for the covenants that God made with human, human beings. And so when, it, when they set up Baal Bereath as their little g God, that's essentially saying that the Israelites in that moment left their covenant with the Lord God and bound themselves in covenant with the Canaanites and their gods. And what happens as a result? They did not remember the Lord their God. That's exactly what Satan wants. With the pleasures and the treasures and the influence and the desire for acceptance, the the desire for um, approval uh, from the world, Satan knows that our sinful impulse will always be worship the creation, worship the creature, rather than the creator. Let me just point out one more Old Testament example here. 
Psalm 106, verses 19 to 22. Psalm 106, verses 19 to 22. And this, in this psalm, the, the psalmist is reflecting on the Old Testament generation that God brought out of slavery in Egypt. And here's what we read about uh, Psalm 106, verses 19 to 22. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol, cast from metal. They exchanged their glory with a capital G, so it's referring to the Lord God. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. This is, that's interesting because uh, in the Exodus account that that's describing and reflecting on, you can make a case that at least some of the people in Israel were trying to worship the one true God, but even if that was the case, they were trying to do it in the way of the pagan nations around them. That is through an image, through an image of, of, a, of a bull or a calf, to trying to image strength in, according to their own imagination. But in doing that, they were worshiping a God of their own imagination. They were, they were misrepresenting God, um, and, 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 and which led them into uh, not worshiping him at all and into the lives and ways of the cultures and nations around them. And what does that psalm say? happened to them as a result they forgot the God who saved them when it says when they admired and imitated the ways of the world they became like it and were lured away by it and forgot God why belabor this point why we haven't even read our passage today why belabor this point to show that the great prostitute has been active in the world since the garden of Eden um, and will always be in the cultures and nations of the world until Jesus comes back and the goal of that enemy is always the same. Be satisfied with the goods and pleasures and approval uh, of the world so that you will forget God, feel no need for him. And um, this, this prostitute and all who have loved the world and loved the things of the world will be judged fully and finally in the next chapter, chapter 19, but in our chapter for today, chapter 18, that final judgment will be foretold in such a way and with such certainty that it is, it is described as if it has already happened. And so seriously, without any further introduction, let's read the chapter. And I would invite you to follow along with me as I read it aloud. Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having, the, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Think about that verse. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, 
And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her in like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these waters who gained wealth from her will stand far off, In fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you No more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. Let's pray. Lord, this is a sobering word. It it behooves us to read it at length and to 
to hear carefully every word of it. Every word of it we know and we confess our faith is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And um, Lord, would you please, in the few minutes we have to, to gather around this word, would you please give us eyes to see what you would have us to see in it? Eyes to see the truth that you would see, have us to see, the, and minds to understand it clearly, and, and hearts to embrace it, feel the, the weight and the truth of it, such that it would move our wills to obey whatever admonition you would give us. And then would you give me the help that I seriously need to teach, and would you give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to I highlight three things from this chapter. One, one exhortation and two general truths. And I'll explain what they are as we come to them. One exhortation and two general truths. And so let's get going and think f- first about the exhortation to the re- readers that we see clearly early on in the chapter. So it's not one that we haven't seen before. In fact, I think I might have mentioned this one last week. Here's the exhortation. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. I told you earlier that this chapter is foretelling it's foretelling things that will actually happen in the next chapter, but it's written in such a way and with such, such certainty that it, it's as if it's already happened. It is so certain to happen. Let me show you one example of that right at the outset of the chapter. The chapter opens with an angel calling out in verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, past tense. Past tense. It says it twice. That gives, the, that gives the appearance in this chapter that the final judgment has now come, but we know that it's, that it's actually foretelling something that won't happen until the next chapter, chapter 19. It, it hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain to happen that Babylon can already be described as fallen. We know that it hasn't happened yet here because just two verses later in verse 4, the church is given this exhortation. Come out of her. My people. Now, this is this this could be uh, a reference to um, a, a more literal reference to Christ coming with His saints and for His saints and calling them up uh, uh, at at His second coming, which will be described in the next chapter. Or it is it is a more figurative exhortation to to come out of her. Because look at the rest of the verse: "Come out of her." lest you take part in her sins. If he was calling them up to glory, there would even be no opportunity to take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. Lest means for fear that. So, so come out of her for fear that you would take part in her sins. Come out of her for fear that you would share in her plagues. That's an exhortation to repent. Which indicates that the judgment described in verse 2 is, is a foretelling of something to come since there is here in verse 4 an opportunity to repent. And it's told here in order to be an incentive to flee the love of the world, to flee what it holds out as desirable, um, to, to be free from the fear of the coming judgment. And, and Jesus said, you will know people by their fruits. So that's the exhortation. Even to those who appear to be his people, Don't be deceived by the love of the world. Flee it. The incentive of the coming judgment is is necessary. Why why couch that exhortation in this passage, which is so graphic in a coming judgment? Why give that incentive 
in this context precisely because the power of the prostitute to deceive is so strong. Um, Look again at the language of verse 3 where it talks about those who have become drunk on what she offers. And it talks about the power of her luxurious living. I've mentioned many times the man Demas mentioned in the New Testament. Demas, D-E-M-A-S, who was at one time presumably a missionary companion of Paul, at least a companion of Paul in some aspect of his life. And, um, and, he's, and Paul writing at the end of his life, the, the, the last chapter of the last letter that we have from the hand of Paul, 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul regrets, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And presumably the faith altogether for the love of the world. Not that he was saved and then lost it. His, his, Demas is not persevering to the end was the evidence that he never had life in him to begin with. He may have had enthusiasm, but not life. Genuine saving faith perseveres to the end. John, who is recording this revelation, he said in his first letter, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are strong and necessary words for us. When does this don't love the world? Does that mean like go live in a cave, don't don't enjoy any good thing that this world has to offer? No, it doesn't say that. Just don't love them and enjoy them as ultimate things, right? Right? Recognize that they, they are a, a, a faint and shadowy picture of a greater joy, of a greater reality. This is not all that there is. So, if anyone loves the world as an ultimate thing, the love of the Father is not in him. From Adam until now, we so easily get caught up in the comforts and allurements of the world. I do. You do. You know it. And, 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 and it's so easy that we forget about the Lord altogether. And the most deceptive thing about it is we often don't realize it when it's happening. This chapter is given to us in part as a reminder as, and as an exhortation not to be deceived by the world and what it offers. Don't let it drag your heart away from the Lord. The bottom line in this part of the chapter is that those who seek their joy and their comfort in the things of the world and buy into the appearance of certainty that the world promotes will be bitterly disappointed and ashamed when the judgment comes. That's the exhortation. I don't know another, a nicer way to put it. That's just what it is here. And look quickly how then uh, we see a couple of other general truths that are, uh, that are added to this exhortation. And then we actually may have some time to discuss it around our tables. Amazing. Here's, the first at that, here's that first general truth we find in this chapter. And it's simply this. God remembers. God remembers. There's a statement worth noting in verse 5. If you look there again, it says of the ungodly, her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That is a great reminder that that um, something that we have about our own sin is we have a tendency to forget them. 
And, uh, and we have, I guess we, we implicitly assume that if we have forgotten it, well, the Lord has also. Um, and no doubt you've heard the well-known and sobering remark of Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Um, similarly, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Do you remember every careless word you've spoken this morning? I haven't. I don't. But God does. Every single one. Time heals a lot of things. But time doesn't atone for sins. Christians have this promise and this assurance in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And among the benefits laid out in Jeremiah 31 of that new covenant is this promise. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. God remembers. But for those who have fled to Christ for their salvation, He remembers no more. I mean, for, for those trusting in Jesus, our righteousness and our, our forgiven standing before the Lord has already been earned by, entirely by his, his sinless and perfect life. And it is assured to us by the shedding of His blood and by His resurrection from the dead. Imply, and, and, and God promised that for those who repent and run to Jesus, he, he will remember their sins no more, implying that for those who don't, He will. He will. That's a, that's a, that's a dual comfort. Um, that's a dual comfort. If Jesus, has, if Jesus has fully paid for all my sins, then God the Father certainly remembers that Jesus bore them, and I don't have to. But likewise, it's the assurance that every evil will be judged because God will remember it, even if the evildoer has forgotten. You say, well, how is that a, how is that a, a joy, like... How is that a pleasure that we should look forward to? Well, the Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us uh, in, 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 this, uh, in this chapter um, where it... Where am I? I've, I've, I've missed it. In this same chapter, it talks about uh, the, the saints rejoicing over... Re, yeah, verse 20. In the midst of this foretold judgment, verse 20... Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So how could I, how could I find joy in the judgment of people? Because in that day, you, I, what I learned from that is right now, I don't see it clearly. And on that day, when I'm with him, I will see as clearly as he sees. I will see the wickedness and, and, for what it is, and I will... Rejoice as I should on that judgment against the wicked. God remembers. And I will be, and because I rejoice over it, I am all the more thankful for the forgiveness that I have in that day. That's a good and important truth, but there's one more that I want us to make sure that we note here before we have time around our tables. And here's the, the second, the third point, second general truth. The judgment of God will be swift 
exact, and final. The judgment of God will be swift, exact, and final. It's not certain that that they understood it fully at the time, but we know now that we have the whole Bible that the prophets of the Old Testament didn't just foretell the first coming of the of, of Christ, but they actually foretold also the events surrounding his second coming. But the thing was, they, they, from their perspective, they all saw it as happening at one time. When we know when it played out in history, Christ, came, Christ comes in two installments. First to do some things, second time to do two other things. The, the most clear example we have of that is Isaiah 61 verse 2. Isaiah 61, verse 2, where Isaiah prophesies of that, that, that Jesus would come one day. The Christ is going to come. And, and here's what he says in Isaiah 61, 2 about what Christ would do when he came. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He makes it sound as if when he comes, that's what's happening. But we know that when Jesus came and he stood up in Luke chapter 4 and he, and he turned to that very passage... Jesus opened up the scroll and he read, he stopped at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled it up, gave it back, and sat down. Because Jesus knew at his first coming was the year of the Lord's favor. The day of vengeance would wait till his second coming. What Isaiah saw as one event, Jesus is playing out in two. And that day, that second day, the whole point of that exercise is to say this, the second coming is coming just as surely as the first one did. Okay? It's not an if, it's a when. And, 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 and it's, as I said, in Revelation 18 tells us that um, when that day of vengeance comes, it will be swift, exact, and final. Let me just, those, I've, I've chosen those words as, as trying to describe what is described here. So first we see the swiftness. Did you notice the swiftness of the judgment when we read it in full? Look, for example, in verse 6. Um, it says, uh, nope, that's not, that's not, that's not it. Let's, uh, verse eight, verse eight, rather. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. The, 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 and it's repeated again in verse 10. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. If you go down to verse 17, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. The, the imagery that is given to you there is like, these are things that the merchants of the earth and the peoples of the earth have enjoyed for a long time. And in a single day, in a single hour, it's gone. Swift. We see that elsewhere. Think about 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-two when Paul is... Describing the second coming of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul famously says that Jesus will come back in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I don't even know what that is, but it must be fast because we've never seen it, the twinkling of an eye. Jesus himself said in Mark 13, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
So his judgment will be swift. We see also in this chapter that his judgment will be exact. There's a potentially puzzling phrase in verse 6 that I tried to reference a moment ago and was wrong. But yes, in verse 6 this time, there's a potentially puzzling phrase there. In that verse, we read the command, Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Is that saying that God is going to punish the ungodly twice what they deserve? Double what they deserve? That would seem to be unjust if so. I don't think that's what's being said at all, despite appearances. The reason I don't believe that's what's being said at all, I believe double here is used in the sense of the counterpart to what they have just done. And we know that's the case because the very next verse says, As she has glorified herself in and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. So he will punish in like measure. And it will be as exact as it is swift. Lastly, we see that the Lord's judgment will be final. You you get that sense. It's it's unmistakable um, as you read the the closing verses of the chapter. And the judgments are, are, the foretold judgments are pictured coming down um, no less than six times. We read the phrase, no more, in verses 21 to 23. From these verses, we are told that, and let me preface this. This is describing the things of this world, not the next. Okay, so don't think that these things will be also be no more in the new heavens and the new earth. These things will be present in a in a perfectly sinless way in the new heavens and earth. So for one thing, it's going to say music will be no more. We're going to have music in heaven. Okay, that's talking about this world, this screwed up world. He says, he says, Babylon will be no more. He says in verse 22, music will be no more. Craftsmen will, be no, will build things no more. We'll also have all that in heaven too, but just, not, just pure and holy. Industry will be no more. Everyday events exemplified in verse 23 by new marriages will be no more. And you put all that together, and it's just, yeah, God's judgment will be final, it will be exact, it will be swift. I'm going to leave you with a few minutes to discuss these things around your table, but when I read and I teach this chapter, it is counterintuitively encouraging. It is. It's even in the, even in the warning not to be deceived, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Even in that warning and, and the assurance that God remembers iniquities, even when we forget, um, and the sober reality of his coming judgment, I think it, it's counterintuitively encouraging because, again, we are reminded of the unbelievable hope and salvation we have in Jesus as well as the perfect justice that will reign when he comes. So let's pray, and then you have just a couple of minutes to discuss things around your table. Lord, thank you so much for this word, and I pray that you would give us grace to think about these things a bit further around our table. In Jesus' name, amen.